welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and today we are going to take another step towards escaping the cave by actually re-watching or re-listening to an old episode that I am transferring over from my other show, That's BS. So as I said before, um, this show is basically the new start to anything that I'm doing related to philosophy, and that show is continuing to be um, a political show, a show about society, culture, um, a more laid-back discussion show. So this is a, an episode that I had previously done um, on That's BS, but I think it's relevant to this show and its topics, and so I'm going to carry it over. So here it is, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to That's BS. I'm Jordan. I'm Adam. And today we have a pretty exciting episode. Uh, we've got Tom and Woodrow joining us from the Dirty History Podcast. So, hey, guys. How's it going? How you doing? Good, good. How are you guys? Uh, doing well. I'm actually really excited to do this. When you reached out, when listened to that uh, analyzing historical figures in the dialectic rhetoric episodes, and I was like, oh, shit, this is going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, two... we... Hey, go ahead, Adam. No, I was like, we, we had fun with those. I mean, there was... Uh... Definitely a, a big difference in ideology, but but I don't I don't know we I, I think we kept it rooted in you know historicity. So yeah, no, for, most, for the podcast. most part, yeah, yeah. yeah I don't know. Um, so yeah, the the way I found you was I saw one of your um, really cool looking flyers hanging uh, in a local pub, and uh, decided to reach out. But we were we were talking about that, and um, it's it's like the uh, the sort of black plague doctor, right? With the you know he has like the bird mask. Do you know why that they they used those masks? Yeah, they used to take the uh, in the nose part. They would stuff a bunch of per- perfume and whatnot, basically potpourri. So mm-hmm. uh, whenever they're going in, they wouldn't be smelling any of the death or the sickness or anything because I believe in back in that time they thought the disease was actually carried in the bad smells. Yeah, we huh. thought uh, disease was bad smell oriented since up until really recently. Chicago in the ni- early 1900s with the slaughterhouses and all that shit, they thought everyone was getting sick not because, well, they're pouring shit in the water, but because they're smelling the bad water. Why is everyone getting cholera? Well, it's because you're dumping <laughs> rotten guts in the, in, the, in the river. It's not because it smells bad. Yeah, have, you, really? have, you, have you read that book, uh, uh, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair? Yeah, those were the first three episodes we did when we first started oh, this really? thing way back oh. when. Yeah, we were all about that shit. It was, yeah, yeah. It's it's really crazy because they did a this whole ordinance where they moved the city away. They moved the slaughterhouses away from the city because they said, oh, we got to get the smell away. But they moved them downwind. So that didn't help them at all because it kept blowing their way. So they never even got to the root of the problem until they reversed the flow of the river because instead of, you know, making ordinances so you don't dump shit in the river, they decided to reverse the flow because civil engineering <laughs> is so much easier than, you know, getting rid of pollution. Oh, it's <laughs> That's foul. so interesting. I, I had no idea it was linked to scent for them. Yeah, was, that, this... was, that, was that Teddy Roosevelt who sort of, after that, that book was released, that he uh, had that commission sort of uh, put in place to sort of like investigate everything that was going on there? Was that yeah, he uh, read the the yeah. jungle and then oh. he went ahead and decided to create the FDA, the Food Drug Administration, because oh, yeah. they had inspectors, but they were local inspectors. So the bad meat, they would just not ship it internationally and give it to the workers. That way, no one really, well, I meant nationally, rather. No one was shipping international in 1900, but they kept it locally so it wouldn't go out to the general public. So the people were dying in Chicago 
eh, it's the bad air. And they were they, they were finding rat droppings in the food. Oh, it was foul. They were just sort of packaging. They would just sweep everything into the food, right? It was oh shit. It's a lot worse than rat droppings. They <laughs> people were losing limbs, fingers, toes. Oh oh, the pickling rooms. Shit, that's a whole other story. When you're brining it, their hands would get all red and crack, and then bleed all over the food, and they would ha- end up not having no use of their hands whatsoever. That's disgusting. But fascinating though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we um we thought we would sort of kick things off with a, a discussion of um you know sort of the methodology of history, how it's taught, uh, you know, why it's important. And um I don't know, one question that I kind of had today, I'm actually in a um in a history of World War II class. I know Tom, we were talking about that. Um yeah. but one of the questions that kind of struck me today in class was I, I noticed that in um, sort of previous professionally taught, um, you know, history classes, different events in history are taught as sort of segmented pieces of time. And it wasn't until uh, really this class, and I'm a huge fan, as I'm sure you are, of uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It wasn't until I started listening to that podcast um, and taking this class on World War II that I, I more of started to view history as like a really, it's like a narrative and it's a spectrum more than individually isolated events. Um, but I was curious because I, I like your format of the podcast a lot, which is kind of like a quick, a quick dive into, um, you know, a historical theme in a historical time. And it's, it's really interesting, but I, I was curious if you had any thoughts on how history is taught. Oh, I have a lot of thoughts on historical <laughs> thought. We're going to be here until about six in the morning now. Thanks for that question. Oh, yeah. All right, listeners, uh, grab a beer. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's definite flaws in the way we teach history in colleges and high schools today. Because the way we typically do it is there's, well, I'll start in high school first. The, the textbook idea. The textbooks are very, very sanitized. You know, they teach the, I guess it's like the really like, basic rudimentary form of an idea you know when you you get a page about slaughterhouses and, and that's that because our, our general idea when we made dirty history was that there's these pieces of the past that are just routinely overlooked by academics and educators alike and it's not it's not because they're unimportant but it's because they're unpleasant vulgar shamelessly violent lewd crude rude mean feminine sexual standards of taste and we we ignore them. However, we we at Dirty History, we study them almost exclusively because we think that these are the clearest illustrations of central themes to humanity. Mm. That was the short of it. I'm sure we'll have some more to say. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, that's cool. interesting. I mean, so do, do, do you think it's important, though, at, at the high school level that, you know, students just being introduced to history, though, should get a survey level of history, though. I mean, like, like, like if I was to take an American history course, should I not get sort of just a, uh, a, a general understanding of what of how the United States has, has formed and, you know, to give me an understanding of like, you know, the United States as it is today. Right. I mean, because the thing is, you don't have the time to dive into everything fully. Right. No, yeah, you're definitely right about that. You need a base set of understanding of it. But I'm saying the the scholarship around history, once we get past the survey level courses, really does a piss poor job of giving you the full scope. Now, you always need the base. And I'm not saying dirty history will provide you the whole of history. 
as a form of methodology, you definitely need a base and this is more of a supplemental form. No, that's fair. Cause I'm just thinking back to like my own, like, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm no history major, but I think back to like, like going through like an American history textbook. Like if I find like anything that seems interesting, I'll just like, that's when I Google it. Right. You know what I mean? Like it, it'll give me a taste of what happened there. And I'm like, Oh, okay. I'll, I'll then I'll dive into it. Right. Yeah. Like I, I think the the general history books, they're not meant to give you like a full understanding. Yeah. Part of the idea behind how we do things is that uh, whenever you present with history, a lot of the times you're presented with what's called the great man kind of uh, way of interpreting history. And we like, those are just generally culturally marked because they have the signs of what um, the people in that time and place considered to be morally exemplary. What we're doing is we're taking all the things that are considered to be just absolutely abhorrent, the things you can't do, the things bad people do, and we're looking at those to see what we can learn about history and society through that. So it's kind of like the it's kind of like the opposite of great man history. This is bad people. <laughs> and that's not to say that great man doesn't have its time and place. It you're right, it does it does serve as an introduction. I just think that you definitely have to go further than that if you're if you want to inquire deeper into history, because you're not, again, you're missing out on the full picture, you know, mm-hmm. no, that's, that's very fair. Yeah. yeah. You can have to roll up your sleeves and really get into it. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's some gross shit out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, this, this is kind of an irrelevant question, but uh, what, what, what is the, the dirtiest piece of history you've discovered about the United <laughs> States? I, I, I'm just interested. Keep yelling. Uh, we did a whole series called Holy Shit about the religious uses of feces from culture to culture, and there was a lot of coprophagia eating shit, and that's uh, that got oh. pretty gross. Oh, as as in America, the number one, I'll just, like, if you want to see the dirtiest of the dirty, just look up G.G. Allen, and that's just an endless rabbit hole of fun. G.G. Allen. Whoops. Yeah, he's um he was this punk guy and we did a whole, we did actually did a whole episode on him. I guess that was kind of great man history in a way. But it's dirty man history because he's an awful human being. He was. He committed. He, he wanted to commit suicide on stage, but he died of a drug overdose first. But uh, he would often jerk off on stage, shit on stage, piss on stage, what, what cut himself profession? on stage. What was that? What was his profession that he was doing this for? He was a punk rock provocateur, but that's really romantic. He wasn't. He was just a punk rock shithead, really. Yeah. <laughs> Oh God! Jeez! Wow. Um, I I don't know if you you're in a position to like have a, a firm opinion on this, but what do you think is like um or or are for multiple cases the most kind of censored areas of history that we stay around? I mean, I'm sure for it's local to local. Like in the U.S., we shelter us from the worst things the U.S. has done, right? Yeah, I mean, there there's a definitely some of that, especially in like high school textbooks. You don't. I mean, from all the textbooks I've seen, there's at best maybe a paragraph about the internment camps that we put Japanese citizens in during World War II. You barely hear about that. And we can get into that when we start talking about rhetoric during the during the World Wars, because that's an interesting topic I'd like to discuss later. But for right, I, I think we had a habit of really censoring women in history. I mean, we definitely we don't talk about hygiene and the female sense. We don't talk about periods, tampons, the invention of those things that have made society cleaner, healthier, and things like that. We don't really discuss that. When we discuss the Salem witch trials or witchcraft in general, it's just, 
Oh, uh, they were witches, but they weren't really witches. People were just a little crazy because they're Puritans and we burned them. That's the oversimplified version. But we definitely don't get into details about times where we persecuted women. That's a very overlooked subject. And I'm not saying I'm an expert. I just think it's an important topic. Something I think we'd eventually cover, of course, with the help of adequate professionals. Because Native American history as well. Yeah, Woodrow's right. Native American history. Really, we have a shit record of any kind of history that involves minorities. We have a really we do a poor job of covering those. And again, those things that are just dirty, vulgar, violent. I think um, I'm going to name drop a book. Thaddeus Russell's Renegade History of the United States is one of the few history books that really jumps into a lot of things that we ignore or a lot of things that we kind of sell a certain narrative on and we ignore a whole other aspect, a whole other side of that spectrum. Hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, just that, that kind of leads me to ask, um, so what does sort of um, go into being a history major? Like what are the kind of check marks you have to reach? Is it, uh, do you have like a concentration? Do people have concentrations? I have no idea how that works. Well, I currently am an education major and a history major. It's all one major, but you're essentially a double major. You have all of your developmental psychology classes and your curriculum classes. That's the education side. And I have to take all the same courses history majors do. And when we do that, it's at least it's Slippery Rock. I can't speak on other universities, but you have to kind of you kind of pick your concentration even as an undergrad because you have there's certain um, pathways you could take where you could take uh, these many credits of Western history with these many cre credits of non-Western and these many credits of uh, what was the third one? There was a third one. It was some bullshit like military history or something. But and you um, can mix and match how many credits you get in each area. I primarily focused in, it was a lot of American history, but most of my American history courses were all urban history courses, mm -hmm. the American city and things like that. Because I find that very, that's the best that I think a university did at getting at those topics we typically don't cover. You know, New York in the 1970s, Chicago, 1900, hell, Pittsburgh in the 20s and 30s. That place was disgusting. <laughs> uh, yeah. hmm. not yeah, a good place to live so people people always romanticize you know living in mm. pittsburgh in that time period even though they were you know just breathing in smog 24 7 so <laughs> yeah. it was i forget i think it was Pitt. maybe you guys had some archives i went into and um they had all these pictures from pittsburgh in the 1930s and it it literally looked like what i would imagine gotham city to look like it was just covered <laughs> in smog with this gothic architecture and no one's smiling there's kids that already have emphysema like they already have it <laughs> they sound like they've been smoking for 40 years it, it's just it's not a happy place uh, it's like it's like a lot of china today yeah. so oh, shit yeah, <laughs> get that the definitely they there's a lot of measures that need to be put in place for air um air quality actually i just saw the news today the air quality is shit in pittsburgh right now oh really yeah it was something about uh the all the salt on the road and the way the weather's been i don't know i'm no. not gonna get i'm a historian i don't know shit about today yeah <laughs> no, I, I mean i'd believe it <laughs> um well yeah so so that um, we can get into, I was really interested to talk about, um, cause like I said, I'm in this, uh, the history of world war one class. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But, you know, we actually started back in um, the 800s with Charlemagne and the First Reich, you know, what Hitler considered to be the First Reich, the Second Reich, moving on through it. And, um, and I, I, we've been talking about this interesting topic um, that relates to uh, the podcast we did. It's like episode 26 or 27 um, about rhetoric and the dialectic and stuff like that. And um, there was just, I mean, I, I'm sure you can tell me more about this than I know, but it was just um, this really sort of eye-opening moment for me when I realized that, um, you know, a large portion of why people doubted the the reality of concentration camps in World War II was actually because they lost faith in the institutions of news because of all the you know the propaganda that was pushed in Britain and places like that during the course of World War One. I. I had no idea that that was like the, the, the cause of um of a lot of uh you know doubt as to the reality of the the concentration camps. Mm. You want me to go first? All right. Oh wait, go ahead. Oh oh oh! I I was just thinking about just uh I I mean. Did, did people lose the same amount of faith in the United States because of the same propaganda being pushed in, you know, during World, I, World War One in the United States? Because, I mean, there was certainly a lot of propaganda in this country, too, during that period. I mean, I guess I guess you had like, uh, who was that? Was it was it George Creel was was the one who had his, you know, he deployed like I think it was like 75,000 four minute men to just run around and give like these four minute speeches to just convince the general public that it was, you know, imperative to to enter this war. You know what I mean? So did, were people um, disillusioned after that period in the United States too because of like the uh, the propaganda being pushed? So are we talking directly after World War One and then into World War Two propaganda? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, here's something that's really interesting because we had the 1920s and that was characterized widely by the Red Scare. And sure, people sure. are absolutely terrified of communism and we're just, the news machine is just pushing that shit out like it's going out of style and eventually we realized that um it didn't happen until well past the cold war that maybe communism wasn't such a threat in the u.s even today i think some people are still overly scared of socialism we don't have to get into that now <laughs> we we've already we, we've uh sort of dove into that on our podcast too just like just yeah. these ridiculous videos being pushed that are just it's complete propaganda on the right, but that's <laughs> nonsense. Um, but now, I know for people, this delusionment of the citizens in the U.S. will talk first, and then we'll move. It. I think it really starts. Well, not really starts, but it really gets hyped up during the Great Depression when you have all of these World War One sold, all of these World War One veterans. You know, they were denied their bonus. The whole bonus army thing. They march on Washington. They're living in these shit shanty towns called hoovervilles and then hoover calls in the army and then you have macarthur who shows up which no one learns from their mistakes macarthur didn't follow orders who would have thunk it and he um, (laughs) marched into these camps and actually two people died two u.s veterans died because they were just trying to get their bonuses so people at this point are they're of course very upset with the government and that shows in the election when fdr wins overwhelmingly right yeah yeah and that's the key moment the 1932 election fdr wins on this whole idea of the new deal right he's pumping out new new deal propaganda posters murals he hires it's called what was it the federal art project when he has yeah, yeah. murals of guys working it's mm-hmm. all oh, wow. my mind on the new deal. yeah it's all <laughs> propaganda at this point because 
FDR's doing the fireside chats where he's like, I'm just a simple man when you've been a politician <laughs> your whole life. And at this point, Americans are coming, becoming disenfranchised because, yeah, the New Deal kind of helps. But as soon as the federal government pulls back some of its funding, the unemployment rate goes right back up again. So they're seeing all of these things like the New Deal's working, the New Deal's working, and there's still many, many people unemployed, going hungry. And they're wondering, the government's telling me it's working. The government's telling me people are back to work. I'm hearing about it in the news and I'm hearing it on the radio, but I still don't have a job. My friends don't still have a job. What's going on here? Am I getting the full story? Am I not getting the full story? Then World War One, World War Two breaks out rather and everyone's into, everyone goes into work then and that effectively ends the Great Depression. But at that point, people sort of forgot almost they got well preoccupied rather about all of this new deal mumbo jumbo we were told it was working but it wasn't working but we'll put that aside right now because we just got bombed or we just got attacked rather and that really pushes it aside and then post-world war ii i think you could definitely see some of this skepticism coming back out and i i just i definitely would say the, the american population to some extent at least, was definitely disenfranchised with the news media because all they were getting pumped with well into World War II was propaganda. It was a propaganda machine on all parts of the conflict. That's pretty fair. Just, uh, just, just, you know, because I, you know, I, I, as a classic lib, I'm going to defend the New Deal a little bit. Would, <laughs> would, don't you think, though, that it, you know, it was... It was working until FDR, you know, sort of took his foot off the pedal, you know, off the uh, the accelerator. Because I mean, you know, unemployment was what twenty five percent, you know, at at its peak, and I mean that 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 did drop precipitously once he began to, you know, you know, fund these programs heavily. But then he stopped funding them, and he was wasn't he sort of uh he he got a lot of opposition in Congress because um. If I remember correctly, when he tried to pass through those midnight judges, you know, like the into the Supreme Court, he uh, he got a lot of bad publicity because of that, and Congress was less willing to work with him. So, would would wouldn't that wouldn't that be fair to say the New Deal was less effective after that point? Just well, because the New Congress Deal was- at the very beginning, the first 100 days he's in office, will take very effective. I mean, yeah, people yeah. are back to work, where the unemployment rate drops. You're definitely right about that. And he gets opposition on all sides, the left and the right, because he has opposition on the left saying he's not going far enough, opposition on the right yeah. saying he's gone way too far. It's a lose-lose for him. And then he has the whole court-packing sure, sure. fiasco, which doesn't help him at all. But, he, but before then, even when we start, even when we see federal funding being taken away little by little, redirected at new places, the unemployment rate goes right back up. It was like, say you have brain cancer, and you're, you have a horrible headache, and the doctor gives you Advil, your headache is, will be relieved for a while, but you still have brain cancer, you know? Yeah. He, one of the, the three R's, reform, what was it, recover, and um, relief, recover, and reform. Yeah, and yeah. I don't think he ever really checked that third box. He made some great attempts. We have the FDIC, the SEC, the um, we have Social he, Security now. He passed through right Glass-Steagall. Glass-Steagall was a, was a you know, monumental piece of uh you know legislation that, that curtailed the banks i mean or or and, and at least you know what was it i think it it protected people up to five thousand dollars in terms yeah. of investing in banks like they, yeah, the 5, government 000. yeah yeah so i i feel like there were some good achievements of, of the new deal i don't know oh yeah I, I i agree with you there there were definitely some great achievements i just don't think it was 
completely effective in the way that it was marketed to the people. That's fair. It That's wasn't fair. the end-all, be-all. It wasn't going to solve the Great Depression. It wasn't going to put all of America back to work again because the unemployment rate, again, it it worked. And then we started, we stopped giving so much federal funding and it yeah. didn't work again. And you just, you couldn't spend on a deficit for that long. There had to be some way to recoup your money. And of course, uh, World War II ends up doing that to a degree. But it really, you, you, it was it was unsustainable. And that was the general problem with it. What do you? Okay, I, I want to throw you a counterfactual here, just just for fun. I know we're a little off topic, but what do you what do you think about what if we would have spent so much more like the like the farther left of the Democratic Party was calling for? I mean, do do you think that that would have mimicked the spending in World War II? Because I mean, we we spent so much in World War II that it really did you know revive the economy. I mean, do you, do you think that if we would have spent that during the you know the New Deal? <clears throat> or an equivalent amount that it would have had similar effects in the economy that World War II did? <sighs> Shit, I really don't know. I I, I really... Hmm, that's, a, that's a good hypothetical. I mean, it's really good for an economist. I'm not an economist. <laughs> I can't speculate about how much, how much that would have helped or not helped the economy. I mean, if you yeah. get everyone back to work on the federal dime... Everyone's working, but again, the government would probably they're they're not occurring any kind of debtors, you know. When, no, we, that's, that's fair. when we go into World War II, we have different countries in our debt because we're giving out arms and ammunition to various parties and whatnot. When you're just employing American workers on public works, you're not creating anyone in debt. You're just kind of handing out money for labor. Granted, your infrastructure is going to be fucking amazing and <laughs> you're going to have dams and murals everywhere, but you're not going to have money in the bank, so to speak. Plus, after World War II, because of all the devastation that happened mostly in Europe and elsewhere, uh, not in the United States, the United States yeah. really benefited from being able to take more of a power position among the world's uh, superpower governments. Definitely. So a lot of the economic prosperity after World War II is due to that. And also, you got to keep in mind how many weapons we were making for other people. No, that's fair. I, I was just astounded when I was looking at the numbers in terms of like, because, you know, you, you always hear about how much the New Deal costed. And, and then I looked at it and it was like, OK, well, before the New Deal, we had a, you know, a national debt of 20 billion. Then after the New Deal was 40 billion. But then after World War Two, it was 260 billion. That's how much we spent on World War Two. Yeah, war isn't cheap. Yeah, I, so I, I'm just saying, like, it's just an interesting. I'm interested to know, like, uh, when the left was saying we didn't go far enough. I mean, is there some truth in that? Is there? Is that? Is that? Uh, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Huey Long really wanted them to go even. He was really critiquing FDR, and I'm not sure what the country would look like if we went along with what he was suggesting. A kingfish. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> If we could get Dan Carlin on here, I'm sure he would start talking about it. Well, you know, I'm <laughs> thinking this was happening. We're more of the blood and guts guys. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Is it is it fairly <laughs> uncontroversial that uh that the economic upturn we experienced during World War II is what pulled us out? I don't think that's really controversial. It's generally agreed upon. I mean, that's how it's taught in high school. The mm. New Deal didn't work. This did because the New Deal was nearly socialist. So war <laughs> is the true American way of fixing the economy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. As always. Yeah. 
<laughs> it, 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 I, this is just like another little tangent, but I, I was um, I was researching the uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority, you know, which uh, you know, it, it came under fire so much in the uh, you know uh, ensuing decades, and I was looking into it, and it was amazing how successful the Tennessee Valley Authority was. Like it was like you know, people were like, oh, it's socialism, it's it's horrible. Then I looked into it, and it was like it eliminated unemployment, it subsidized housing. And it was one of the most prosperous areas in the country for decades afterwards. And I was like, well, like, <laughs> like it was, it was a highly successful program. So I don't know. It's like, I don't want to speak too generally, but oftentimes when we see great advances in an area or in technology, it typically comes from government funding first. You know, when we say we privatize space travel, that's great. But who did it first? You have, you cannot, a singular business cannot possibly put in enough money and time for the research necessary or the infrastructure building necessary to do great things like building what, how many hundreds of dams were built in Tennessee to create um, enough hydropower to power how many houses was it? It was insane it's numbers. It's amazing. Hmm. So that the private sector really couldn't match. No. Yeah, a lot of that is just because there's not always necessarily like a direct, obvious economic benefit to doing something that's in the field of basic science, like science just for the sake of science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of the time that has to come from government funding because, you know, institutions are set up to do that. Some of it can sure. come from R&D and individuals, universities, etc. But uh, the government has been a big source of that. But uh, on your note about like, you know, the socialist societies and such working out. One thing that uh, one of Zizek's big things about uh, China and Russia and their communist states is that none of them really followed the formula that Marx set out, which involves it being like an industrialized nation before it switches over. Mm, So according to Zizek's critique, you really can't judge the concept of it by all of the real world cases that exist that have existed. Like yeah. Russia and China aren't necessarily the perfect example, just as the United States isn't the perfect example of capitalism in theory. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. Hmm. And, and and just and just to you know throw in a caveat here, I'm I'm not I'm not an actual socialist. I'm just. Yeah, I in no way I, 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 am I, but I'm just saying like. Just like like when discussing like narratives, you know what I mean. I think it's just interesting how there's this 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 narrative you learn about, just like you know socialism and government programs always being bad, and then you look at this area where you know the Tennessee Valley Authority was condemned for decades, even though it was highly successful. And you're like, hey, I, I don't know. I think you have to take individual cases at their at, you know face value. So. Another thing about the widespread phobia of that is is uh, you know the popular quote yelling fire in a crowded theater. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Attributed to uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes. That was in the case of uh, of that was in the case versus Schenck where they were prosecuting somebody who was handing out they were prosecuting a socialist who was handing out anti-war literature. And that's what they were referencing as yelling fire. They're, really? yelling, they're, they're talking about a critique of the war effort as being yelling fire. Didn't they, uh, didn't they throw in, uh, uh, Eugene Debs into, into jail during world war one, the, the, the socialist candidate in the early 1900s. I think they did. Yeah. <laughs> I think they, they threw him in prison for being, I think under the espionage act. So yeah. Yeah. yeah and we fried the Rosenbergs, right? That was there in the fifties. Oh yeah. That was, that was bad. I mean, like, I mean, 
we killed them. So, <laughs> I mean, I, don't know. I was right here. But the government did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Um, there's an interesting question that that got asked in the chat. Um, the question is: is uh, is propaganda generally necessary to win wars? Uh, that's a pretty broad question, but um, you know, I don't know. I, it's pretty arguable. I don't know. I mean, I guess you guys know more than me on this, but it's pretty arguable that you could make the case that that's what got, um, you know, Britain, uh, you know, I guess because Britain had a draft, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, they didn't have a mandatory uh, service in World War One. So they, they kind of rallied up a lot of support using propaganda. Is that right? I think it's maybe not necessarily like if you're going to make more of a general statement about propaganda starting wars, I think maybe it's more so ideology that starts wars and propaganda is sometimes used to spin things that way. Sometimes people just react wanting war. Hmm. I'm going to differ from him on this shit. Yeah. Okay. We, we, we got a breakup in the camp. I think <laughs> I wouldn't, I, I'm not going to disagree on the starting wars part. I think ideology does oftentimes can lead to wars beginning. I think we saw that in what world war one and world war two. Now, as for propaganda during a war, I think it is a necessary part of the war machine because you cannot drum up enough public support without getting everyone on the same team, so to speak. It's hmm. You have to round up the troops, meaning you have to round up all the people at home to help out with the war effort because there's so much that goes into war. It's just not guys on the front. You have to you know, make the bullets and the bandages, all of that stuff. You can't do that without convincing people what you're fighting is pure evil which is exactly what we did in world war ii i mean we call what the people that participated the greatest generation uh yeah. don't get me started but <laughs> it's, it's, it's that's propaganda it's you mm -hmm. feel like you're on the right side of history you're doing the good thing so you're going to give it your all you're going to ration your food because i mean even during world war one herbert hoover was the um he was part of the food committee. That's not what it was called. That was an awful term. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was doing the meatless Mondays and the wheatless yep. Wednesdays. Yeah, and that wasn't right. mandatory. That was all volunteerism. That was just people saying, oh, I'm going to do that because it's un-American if I don't. That's, well, that's he, ideology. He, he did pioneer the model there. Yeah, yeah. He, he hmm. pioneered that model, actually. Everyone uh, from that... Well, not everybody, but many countries after, you know, watching Herbert Hoover, you know, pioneer that model, they were like, holy shit, that's like the most effective way is to, instead of, uh, you know, actually creating rations, inspiring people to limit their, you know, usage was actually, you know, a lot more effective. So, I mean, yeah. you had murals painted on the side of buildings about planning your victory gardens to help out with the war effort and not consume. Yeah, yeah. Much. I mean, mm -hmm. we use propaganda to drum up support on the home front and i think that's absolutely crucial to an effective war effort now i could be wrong i don't think i am but i could be <laughs> and, and and the thing is i was also uh i was thinking like you know what also like you know falls in the purview of propaganda because yeah, yeah. I, I was i was thinking about it and propaganda is also what you don't say right because like for um mm -hmm. like in the case of world war ii I know that we we never showed like the bodies of American soldiers. You know what I mean? While like in Vietnam, like you know, you had journalists who were constantly you know sending back bloody photos of you know, you know, uh, dead Americans and you know ravaged Vietnamese you know families. While in World War II, you never saw that. You never saw like you know a, a dead dead Americans in in the press. You also haven't seen that since the War on Terror because around that time. 
they uh, they stopped showing the coffins on TV. Oh, yeah. interesting. Very interesting. Now, there's a topic that I've been really thinking about, and in, in, I think this is a good place to discuss it. If you look at the U.S. and Japan during World War II, there was I cannot find any good examples of them using propaganda in these two specific fields that I'm about to mention when I think they would be perfect minds. In 1944, I might have the date wrong. Don't quote me on it. The U.S. Um, had these uh, prisoners of war from Japan, and they were interviewing them in what is called the War Guilt Information Program. And what it essentially found was that Jap- the Japanese um, military apparatus was recruiting or kidnapping women to work in these quote unquote comfort stations. And what they were serve, we did an episode on this and it's been perplexing me ever since. And essentially they were serving in military brothels and it was seemingly state sponsored sex slavery. No one ran with that. Hmm. It was not, if you're, if you're making a propaganda machine to show that your other side is the wrong side, I think there's not a better case than sex slavery, but for some reason, we didn't use it. It was deemed classified. It was shut off from the public. And we, we don't, we don't, we didn't declassify it until well after the war. And then on the Japanese side, there's, there might be some examples, but I haven't seen any widespread examples that are really talked about in, you know, mainstream history of the Japanese government using how America is um, putting Japanese citizens in internment camps. On both sides, you don't see their gold standards of demonizing the other side used. I mean, they have the smoking gun, so to speak, for the propaganda machine. But for some reason, I can't understand why they held back. And mm. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I just don't. I don't get it at all. That is really interesting because I mean, there's sort of a paradox here where you know America. I mean, obviously, we have this sort of um, like a Puritan. Um, you know, disgust almost for sex in a way where, you know, it, it, it kind of goes against, um, you know, obviously up until very recently, the things that we sort of allow ourselves to discuss in public. So there's sort of, I don't know, maybe like a, a paradox where you would think that that would be like, you know, just like you said, the best thing possible to, you know, to levy against them. But at the same time, maybe it was our sort of allergy to the topic in public that, that, you know, didn't allow us to put it forth. I, I don't know. It's just a theory. I, I have no basis for it. Yeah, I, just, I have not come across anything that really gives me a definitive answer. It's been pissing me off for like two <laughs> months now. Do you how, how how well did we? You know, this is I don't know this very well, but how how well did we hide? You know, Executive Order ninety sixty six. Did like how, how well did we hide that? It, I don't know. Was it? I don't even know if it was classified because people it's common knowledge now. And I'm trying to figure out when it became common public knowledge that we were doing that and whether or not people were behind it because you don't see really any protest against it, you know? Yeah, yeah. For the that, listeners, that, can you clarify what that is? Uh, the internment camps was that was the executive order 9066. Mm-hmm. So 
I, I, I just remember the number because, uh, you know, it's, it's stupid, but, you know, like uh, in Star Wars, you're I just like, you were gonna yeah, I was like, I saw that parallel and I'm like, I'm not going to forget this number. Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> FDR in his wheelchair with his hood up. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly how I imagined it when I read that. It was just like, just like execute order 9066. <laughs> oh, God. That's great. <laughs> That's uh, that's fascinating though, no, dude. Yeah. I, I I can't imagine why either side didn't use very readily made propaganda. So now for everyone watching, there's an answer to that question. You'll just have to listen to Dirty History to find out. <laughs> oh yeah. Shameless plug. That's I don't care. <laughs> that's excellent radio manship. <laughs> oh wait. I, I'm unfamiliar with doing these live stream things. People are posing questions as we're going. Yeah. Yeah, uh, there's there's a, a live chat. Um, actually, the, I don't know if I something looks a tiny bit different about this episode. We just started streaming them live uh, last week with our last episode, so I'm still kind of working out the bugs and everything. But in in you know underneath the the YouTube page and the YouTube video, there's like a live chat that's going on. Okay. Um, so there's been a lot of comments. Uh, I've been trying to ask the more interesting ones. It's hard because you know trying to talk with you guys but then also scan the chat um but yeah i I don't know if i'm doing something a tiny bit differently or not um how how can i see the chat how do can i like where is that uh well you're not going to see it in this like our little window um but if you were to pull it up on your phone um there should be a live chat like underneath the video yeah, cool, yeah. Cool. Um, cool. Yeah, you can't see it in the window. Yeah, that was that was basically just a fuck you to us, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there is a way for me to enable that or not. I I'm still kind of toying with the uh, with the YouTube live and stuff. Um but it makes it it makes it more enjoyable I think cuz the audience can kind of chime in and um it's also easier on my end with editing, I'll be honest. <laughs> that's, that's a big reason oh, why we did it. This is strange. I just pulled it up on Oh, what? I'm listening. Oh, yeah, we can see it on YouTube. Uh, I'm looking at it on YouTube right now as we're doing it. To look oh, at yeah. And it's... So, uh, should we answer one of these questions? Uh, yeah, what about... um? Well, I, so I had a, a question before we get to that, actually. Um, okay. It seemed like when we were talking about propaganda, um, it seems like, you know, the, the sort of uh, quintessential idea that comes to mind is um, propaganda that's false, right? It's kind of sort of a connotation of the word itself. Um, but I was curious, do you, I mean, do you have any idea what, and of course, I mean, in World War One, especially, I know in Britain, there was a ton of propaganda that was spread that was like just totally fabricated. They were saying that, you know, Germans were eating babies and, and shipping men back to be processed in the homeland and things like that. Um which was totally fake, but it was being done with horses, um, which is interesting. But um, I do you have any ideas as to to what proportion of propaganda, maybe like in a in a specific time or in general, is is fake? Because that, the other one that came to mind is that um, that really iconic "Loose Lips Sink Ships" poster that was um, mm. you know published in U.S. bars a lot, and there's nothing untruthful about that in any sort of way. So it seems to run the full gamut there. You want to lead on this one, man? Or do you want us to go? Uh, no, no. If you have any thoughts, yeah. I, I don't think propaganda necessarily has to be dishonest. I mean, we definitely see examples of that because 
the whole one of the main purposes of propaganda is to kind of demonize the opponent or the other or whatever it may be. But you're also trying to build this national myth. So there's a degree of, um, you know, patriotism and um, these these things that bolster your moral high ground. So they're not necessarily true, but this whole you're creating myths. It's myth making. You know, you have your Uncle Sam. I want you. That's propaganda. But there's nothing inherently dishonest about it. It's just um, it's just kind of establishing a, a myth and a national identity or character through these cartoons. Mm. No, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't see anything wrong with the, you know, the, you know, the loose lips sink ships one. But there were like during World War One, I, I think of that iconic poster, of you know, it shows like the Kaiser pulling that. It, it, it's it shows like a, a shadow of the Kaiser pulling a woman, almost like it, implicating that. I, I'm sure if you Google it, you could find it. But it's it's a pretty famous poster. But like it's uh, he's like. It's kind of implying that like mass rape is occurring in Germany too. Like they're gonna they're gonna get our women. Like let me see if I can find it here. There's one that's sort of associated with that. Um, that has this was in the the really early 1920s um, when Germany was starting to link uh, socialism with the Jewish race. And there's one. There's a picture of a uh, you know like a very well drawn uh, you know strong chinned uh, German soldier with his rifle pointing out of the trench. And then there's a a sort of like very cartoonishly drawn uh, socialist Jew with a a knife, and he has breasts, sort of like associating him with, um, I guess, femininity in some way. Um, and he's stabbing the the German soldier in the back, and that was sort of a uh, that was another example of of false propaganda in this case, uh, where they were perpetuating the myth that the socialists and the Jews caused this lie to be propagated that uh, that they were losing world war one when in fact they were not um i think that was Hind- hindenburg and ludendorff who uh who helped propagate that i don't know if i'm correct with, with that um are you still looking for that image adam i just found it actually okay just you, can, it. you can you can screen it. share yeah well, let me do that so all right, let me <laughs> let's see if I can let's see if I can actually do it. Okay, about just like the imagery of like a big scary guy taking an innocent woman away is that it's pretty much used in. Uh, you see it used a lot in cases in which people are trying to foster some sort of like national pride or like fear of invaders. It's it's associated a lot with xenophobia. It's a lot of like this savage coming in and getting your woman. You know, like you see the same thing in King Kong. That's pretty. That's a pretty yeah, yeah. example. Do you see? Do you guys see this one right here? Can you able yeah. to see that? Yeah, it's, Belgium. Belgium. Yeah. Oh, the rape of Belgium. Yeah, it, it's it's just like yeah. um, they'll be right. I'm gonna look up that King Kong one too because I I do remember that one. There's the because we all know there's no way to stop rape like buying liberty bonds <laughs> <laughs> there we go that's the that's that one there oh we go. destroy the mad brute or whatever it was yeah yeah. yeah. yeah interesting oh okay. yeah, yeah yeah that that's interesting that there's like, that repetitive theme. versus barbarian kind of uh dichotomy that you see a lot in history it's like you know romans barbarians you, like uh colonists and the native americans you see repeated over and over and a lot of the time it comes with this kind of symbolism whenever they're doing propaganda for it yeah hmm. because the whole thing is you're trying to establish the other side as the other 
you know, you're on the right side. That's the, it's really the whole point. You're trying to make the population feel as though they're doing something good by buying a Liberty bond. It's not just helping the government, not helping the war effort. It's helping fight evil. It's helping to stop, you know, women from getting raped. Who doesn't want to do that? Unless you're <laughs> do, an asshole. <laughs> do, do you think, do you think it was justified then? Because I, I think from what I've read, Germany was committing, you know, I, I, some sort of mass civilian killings at that point, yeah. like in World War One. Do you think it was justified to portray these people as is beyond human, as sort of just uh, the the essence of evil? To in order to defeat like a real evil, was was it justified? I mean, you can't really not say it wasn't after the Holocaust. <laughs> yeah, it was justified. I mean, you, how, how about you World take War that position, You're kind of on the losing end. <laughs> let's remember yeah. here that world war ii is america's unofficial religion <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's very true well i think i mean i think like tom said it is it is sort of or i well, i guess adam said in in um it's different in world war one because there were it, at least to my eye there was so much less of a clear evil i mean that was like one of the most meaningless wars the world has ever seen right it was just sort of people being tied in by treaties to other people an archduke gets assassinated and suddenly all of the world's main powers are in a struggle like it, it, it just made no sense um and I, actually i mean that's an interesting question um i know there's sort of dispute um about whether it was the the interdependence model or sort of the realpolitik uh you know regression almost that that caused it i know there's i guess there's sort of debate about that explain this explain the second one i don't know what that means the real oh, politic model what is yeah that? it was sort of a um it was a term that was used to to describe regimes that were much more um primitive i guess in the past and sort of isolationist and it was big powers keeping each other in check as opposed okay. to um it was sort of like you know um the big stick policy i guess of uh, roosevelt uh, what was that? Speak quietly and carry a big stick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's uh, it relates back to Otto von Bismarck. That's whenever the, mm. the the word the term was phrased because Otto von Bismarck had a way of just kind of going about and doing the same things that all the other world leaders were doing. You know, like all the bad stuff that they wouldn't have said that they're doing in public. He just went ahead and said it and said why he's doing it and just forced people to be okay with that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's that's interesting. Okay, okay, that makes yeah. sense. So, so are you, so are you saying it's more of like uh, strongman politics, just mm-hmm. sort of like the the isolationist strongman politics, keeping each other in check? Is that simple? Yeah. So, okay. okay. It, it's that, and it's also um, I know an aspect of the interdisciplinary or the um, the interconnected model is uh, is, is an assurance that you need other countries just as much as they need you. Okay. So you that's that's always the model I've heard, you know, in terms of like yeah. what started. I've never heard the other one. That's interesting. Well, it, the, I guess the question is, is um, if they had had a more realpolitik, um, non-linked setup in Europe, would World War One have happened or would it have happened to the magnitude that it did? Mm. Because it's interesting because I think, I mean, Adam, people like you and I especially, we're, we're more fans of globalistic societies, right? Sure. But it is, it is an interesting thought experiment to think, well, if they weren't so interdependent, would World War I have even happened at all, let alone happened? I, I'm just speaking, you know, I'm shooting from the hip at this point because I, I don't, I, my, my historical <laughs> knowledge is, is not as great. But like when I think back to 
you know, to pre-World War One. I mean, when you had strongman countries that weren't interconnected, didn't you still have major wars? I guess not to the extent that World War One, but you I mean you still have dynamos like Napoleon, right? Mm-hmm. That that but would still, emerge but... and, and attempt to take over the continent, right? Yeah, I guess the the difference there is it was one empire, you know, the French Empire fighting um, everyone else. It wasn't the French Empire linked with the British, you know, fighting whoever. And I think a large part of that comes in with uh, with the technology. Dan Carlin mm-hmm. touches on this. You can't take yeah. the big hits. You can't keep the this crazy huge conflict going for a long time because you have one big battle, your army's wiped out. I mean, what was it? The Battle of Waterloo, that's it. You can't do these huge scale battles that you see in World War One over and over and over and over again. I mean, what you have Verdun, you have uh oh, I just listened to this fucking oh, the, podcast. The, the Marne? The Marne is one of them, right? The Marne, yeah. You you can't do that up until this point. So I mean, is it a does it have to do with the way the international stage was set at this time? Or is it something to do with that combined with the the apex of technology at that moment? Or I think it just all has a role to play in every, all the pieces were in the perfect, perfect spot for World War One to have occurred. Mm-hmm. Under any other circumstances, it's harder to happen. I mean, but I think the crucial piece you can't take away for a World War One sized conflict is the technology involved. If you can't have the infrastructure to back up that war effort, it never happens. Yes, the politics played a huge role in that. You need that as well. The Westphalian model. model. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Can can, can you explain that? What's the uh, the Westphalian model? You want to hit him with it? Uh, Westphalian model is just the type of sovereign nation model that was set up around the mid-1800s, late-1800s, starting in Europe. And it's pretty much just the model of a sovereign nation that we have now. So mm-hmm. I think that, that has something to do with how it went from being like empire versus empire, empire versus like, you know, outlying territories mm-hmm. uh, to the like the interdependent groups of countries that you have now. Interesting. OK, yeah. very, very interesting. Actually, the um, the the technology that you were talking about, yeah. I never realized how um, how incredible it was. Actually, there was this, you know, totally. Like it was just absurd, actually, a combination of old war style tactics. You know, people were still sort of reminiscent of the Napoleonic Wars where it was all about honor and dueling and things like that. You had that mindset. and I mean, there were still horses used in in World War One. You had that combined with, um, you know, barbed wire, the use of trenches, machine guns, tanks, the German U-boats, Zeppelin bombardment and like a, a poison gas. So is this artillery? Insane? exactly yeah and so i was just shocked to learn that all of that sort of coincided into this hellish amalgamation that happened in world war one yeah i mean combined during world war world war one the british and german forces fired what it say 300 million projectiles at each other 300 million projectiles over the course of world war one and you have guys in those old war old world uniforms with the white gloves charging a cavalry charge again <laughs> hundreds thousands of shells of artillery and machine gun bombardment and tanks towards the end of the war at that point the horse charging shit kind of goes away because they realize we just get (laughs) slaughtered every time but it's the beginning of the war when they're trying to throw these big punches of you know we're going to charge out we're going to pull the sword and we're going to run people are just getting mowed down and it's absolutely brutal now the meat grinder so so just just as as a quick question uh why 
why didn't these military tacticians, you know, uh, look to, um, you know, the Civil War as sort of like a precursor to, you know, World War One, and they, they look at that model and they say, "Hey, the old style of warfare mixed with modern weapons doesn't work," because, like, I, I think back to you know the Civil War, and even then, at the end of the Civil War, there was we began to see, you know, the uh, the beginnings of trench warfare, right? So why why didn't they look to that war and implement different strategies in World War One? Well, these, I mean, if you look at the Civil War, I mean, they're still using what? They're still using cannons and they're still using these single shot rifles it's the speed of technology outpaced what they even evolved to after the civil war i mean because if you had civil war tactics and technology at the beginning of world war one you're absolutely decimated now if you have world war if you have beginning of world war one tactics at the end of world war one you're decimated that's how quickly it evolves no one really had a chance to catch up because it was happening quicker than they could plan for it and the generals they were leaving, getting fired, getting canned, just resigning, going absolutely bonkers, depressed and insane because they feel like it's all pointless, which it is. But yeah, they, <laughs> it was really, really hard until the end of the war. And even then, not so much to catch up to what the technology was doing and the tactics to match. It was really, really, really hard. But also at the same time, you're kind of like, at this point, you should realize that when you just charge, you die. No one, (laughs) well, we'll charge from this direction because we're going to throw a lot of artillery shells. It's just the monotony and banality of this war. And it just, it just keeps happening over and over again. The same mistakes are repeated, but we do it slightly different this time. We use 3 million shells as opposed to 2 million. And that'll, that extra million clear them right out. But (laughs) It's just they were doing a lot of trial and error. They were. It's not like they weren't doing anything. Oh, keep charging. Keep bringing the cavalry out, you know, but they definitely didn't figure it out in time. I mean, that's that's how so many people die in such gruesome manners in no man's land and the other. Oh, it's very interesting. No, I I, I hadn't Um, considered, you know, how 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 fast the the technology was increasing. You're right. I mean, it was it's uh, because because even at the end of the Civil War, I guess you had, you know, the precursors to. Uh, basic machine guns right like you did have like some machine guns at the end of the civil war um and tactics did change but you're right like once you got you know world war one weapons that's just a different that's a different game at that point yeah all right i I, i'm looking at some civil war weaponry right now we got the gatling gun we got revolvers we we have weapons that aren't you know muskets but spencer repeating rifle you're right but when you look at world war you get the Gatling gun and that's like the big thing, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, World War One, the big thing is we use this artillery tag. We do this rolling artillery tactic. Okay, oh, this artillery shoots further. Oh, you can hit a city from this many miles away. Or, oh, here's a tank now. Or we're going to use these planes. It's these crazy leaps in technology. Oh, the Navy is, we're driving around these huge ass steel ships and we're blasting the shit out of each other. It's, we're, the technology wasn't as wasn't advancing as quickly during the Civil War. I mean, every year during World War One, there was something new to contend with. So just when you figured it out, there's this new thing. You get the Gatling gun, you have some time to figure that out because there wasn't sure. an after after the Gatling gun. And dude, I, I didn't even consider the planes aspect. Holy shit, I, I totally forgot about planes. Plane, <laughs> planes are a totally different game. I mean, if, if you can't if you can't defend against you know uh, you know bombings from the air, I mean, you are fucked. So, 
Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I, I think dog fight. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Red like Baron. the uh the Red Baron. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um a legend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh I mean wasn't this sort of unequivocally the 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 first war of the time that directed or directly affected um you know the citizenry in a way that had never been done in a war before? Um, there were sort of direct bombings, but you sort of had to beat the military to get to the civilians, whereas in World War One you could just fly a zeppelin over, right? Yeah, I mean, other wars still, you see the citizens being affected to a great degree. I mean, sieges were brutal, I mean, when you got mm. to the city. But you're right, you didn't necessarily have to get to this. You just get close enough to the city and you could start throwing an artillery barrage at it. I mean, what was it I... I'm blanking on some of these exact... Oh, the, the Paris gun. The, yeah, the, the Paris gun, the, yeah. the artillery weapon that could reach Paris, and they weren't anywhere near Paris. That's Couldn't it shoot like terrifying. three miles away? Something like yeah. that? It, it was insane. Um, the the it, it weighed... Oh, something... It was insane. It was like 30,000 tons. I, I'm pulling that number out of my ass. I have no idea if it's even remotely Here. correct, but... Let me... Uh, I'll pull it up right now. Yeah. I I know that it was basically a building that could fire a shell. It was in, it was absolutely insane. Um, Amazing. Right. Effective firing rage, eighty one miles. Oh. I knew it, it was something crazy. Essentially, what you would think a crane would look like. Yeah. People that are listening right now, you should Google Paris gun. This is absolutely terrifying. It could fire um, up to 81 miles. The muzzle velocity would travel 5,400 feet per second. Jesus. Um, the length of the barrel was 111 feet and 7 inches. That's, ins- that is, that's mind-boggling, actually. I just looked it up, too. It's a horrifying device. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it, it's absolutely insane. I, I think they were... I don't even. They were bombing Paris from like the Rhineland or something or something like that. It was. I. I don't. I, I don't even remember what it was, but it was absolutely astonishing. I mean, it gets worse in World War Two. I mean, yeah, they were just flying right over the English Channel and just giving London a, a hell of a time. It was. Those bombings were awful. Changed many many people's lives. Yeah. Want to jump on over. All right, hold on. So uh, a little callback to when we were talking about propaganda earlier. I just this book mm-hmm. I just grabbed. I have like this uh, series of history books from 1918 that I found randomly at a yard sale a while back. And that's uh, so this cool. One was written <laughs> whenever World War One wasn't over yet. So oh, this last they've got a little bit of propaganda in there right at the end of the book, so we can keep the boys, you know, overseas and the war effort. Here it says. In the last week of 1917, the Central Powers put forth a peace proposition couched in such terms, however, that it could not be accepted by the Allies, yada, 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 yada. Uh, America was to increase the conviction that the war must be fought to a finish and to quicken the purpose to press forward with a renewed determination to make every effort and sacrifice necessary to overthrow military autocracy and to enthrone worldwide democracy Hmm. and thus lay the basis for a final and lasting world peace. Freedom. Fuck yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that's an early example of that. Then it goes to the end of the book. This is like during the war. So that's literally the last paragraph of a history book. Wow. Holy shit. Dude, that is is such a cool find, actually. Holy shit. That's so cool. (laughs) It's a one, two, three, ten. ten book series. And it ends with the last page is 
we got to keep the boys over there. Wow. Wow. Now, is that referencing? Yeah. I was going to ask, is that directly referencing the knockout blow? Um, that, that was supposed to make space for uh, you know the war to end all wars and the, the war to make democracy safe? Yeah, it's supposed to be that conflict that effectively gives the world democracy. It's our, it's our gift to the whole world. Here's the democracy that you need. Here's the, let's overthrow the military autocracies. Let's overthrow the socialist governments. Ideological manifest destiny. <laughs> oh, whoa. Yeah. Throwing out the big boy terms. Ideological <laughs> manifest destiny it's actually like it's it's we got to keep spreading west you know or in this case east mm-hmm. we have to spread our morals and values to the whole world what does it say democracy is the basis for long lasting world yeah it says quote um necessary to overthrow military autocracy and to enthrone worldwide democracy and thus lay the basis for a final and lasting world peace wow that's okay, the last sentence equals world peace. I, I i love how that you know the book just transitions from you know providing history to suddenly providing some sort of you know uh, prescriptive measure. You know, what I mean, like you know, <laughs> we 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 we've given you sort of like a tale of history, and now here's what should happen. You know, and I mean, it's what what an interesting piece of propaganda. Yeah, because you you read that history book and you're like these these are the facts, right? And you you're looking at these dates and these times and how they used to write it back in the day. And at the very end of the book, you get the notion that. What Woodrow just said, democracy equals peace. That's that's the only way to have peace in the world is to have democracy. It absolutely ignores other kinds of political movements, i.e. socialism, communism, fascism. There's a lot of isms. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not totally certain that it's not the best way. Like it might be like the best way. I don't know, but it's still propaganda for it to be in a history book as such. Mm. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Who, Who wrote that book? It's red path it's uh hold on we're pulling it up i'm assuming it was an american publisher yeah john clark red path it's the new and complete history of the united states of america from well this one came out in 1920 the series is from 1918 okay okay that's fascinating sorry adam you were gonna ask a question yeah i was just gonna you know just make a lateral move here but i was just interested you know based on that term manifest destiny i'm kind of echoing right now in the yeah. Did you um? Are your your headphones plugging in or something? Oh, Adam. No, you're echoing too now at this point. There's... Do you have our stream live or something, and it's picking up that? No, it only just started. I didn't do anything. Oh, that's weird. Uh, I don't think I did anything. <laughs> Is it on our end? Well, it's gone now. Oh yeah. So... <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I, 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 w- I was just going to kind of jump onto the whole, you know, manifest destiny idea. I just think, what, what do you guys think about the the idea that has been pushed of manifest destiny in the United States in general, right? Like, because the thing is, oh, that, that echoing's bothering me. It's back. Yeah, I don't know why that's happening. Um, I don't know. Uh, Tom, did you guys like open any new windows on your end or anything? Uh, no, we've had the same windows open the whole time. Let me, uh, me too, me too. Uh, that's weird. Sorry, sorry to the listeners. <laughs> um, well, I'll I'll try to finish the statement. Okay. But I don't hear it too much anymore. Yeah, but with like the whole the whole manifest destiny idea, I, I was just thinking like um, that that's been a theme throughout United States history in general. And, and it's been almost romanticized, right? Like what we've done in terms of, in, in the name of manifest destiny. Do you, do you think that, you know, 
students are being taught a, a very distorted, you know, representation of what Manifest Destiny has meant to this country? Oh, to be sure. Yeah, exactly. That's really what is happening. Now, I think there's strides now to tell some of these stories that kind of undermine, undermine that ideology, but I don't, I don't think it's, it's enough. You know, we talk about the trail of tears. Sure. And we talk about subjugation of native Americans and we talk about different things like that, the, the dirtier side of the manifest destiny, but we don't necessarily, it's not as prominently featured in textbooks today. There it's all about moving the spirit of individualism and capitalism West. And we're going to, we're going to, Oh, go find our gold and we're going to make our money and stake our claim and start our family and get our land. It's, it's very, yeah, it's very individualistic and very, very capitalistic. And we push that story. What? Imperial. Oh, imperialist. I I, I, I 100% agree with that because the thing is, I've heard this narrative my entire life that the United States was you know, relatively, you know, isolationist up until, you know, around Teddy Roosevelt, you know, once we began to get, no, actually, I'm sorry, not, not, not Teddy Roosevelt, uh, more, more like, I, I would say McKinley, you know, engaging in like, you know, the Spanish American war and, you know, the, you know, uh, seizing the Philippines and, mm-hmm. um, and Puerto Rico. Building, yeah. and, and the thing is, but the, the more I read about history, it just seems like we've always been an imperialist nation. Right. I mean, the thing is like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but, I mean, once we got the Louisiana Purchase, we moved in there, and then we wanted more territory. So James K. Polk started a you know uh, a war with the Mexicans and took fifty one percent of their land. So that's how we got pretty much all of the Southwest and California, right? So the thing is, like, I just feel like throughout American history, we've been expanding throughout the continent, and once we could no longer expand in the continent, that's when we began to look on the global stage. So don't you think that? We, we, we've always been an imperialist nation, right? On the note of... Uh, is this muted? Here On the note of Texas to California, I was actually just watching uh, Ken Burns' The West today, and he was talking about that. So there was a there was a guy who was like a long-standing member of Mexican... like His family had been in Mexico for hundreds of years. He was one of these Spanish folks who was one of the early groups there, and they were running California. And as with Texas, as with Texas, they didn't really think that spain and mexico were really doing anything for them or watching out for them like sure. at a couple of different points they were attacked and then the spanish and mexicans didn't send any reinforcements so uh the governor the, the guy running california actually tried to join peacefully with the united states and also the tejanos and the american people who'd gone to live in texas um they also fought their own war of independence before they joined the United States. So um, a lot of that is, you know, the U.S. wanting to have more territory, but also it's these territories wanting to be part of the U.S. That's not to say that everything that happened to them in the years following was was peachy. Uh, the guy who gave California over to the United States had a lot of problems with it. He was actually arrested at his own home at one point. But uh, there was a lot of native support for the idea of joining the union in those two cases. That that that's fair, but at the same time, like I'm like what I was speaking to was like um, in terms of like the Mexican American War in general, like from what I read, like there remember like there was that border dispute of like where Texas ended, like whether it was the the Nuez River or the Rio Grande, 
And, you know, James K. Polk, he sent troops down to the Rio Grande, the, the farthest southern river, you know, to initiate a war on purpose. I mean, I, I read that the, uh, the White House was actually, everyone in there was praying that a war would start. They were praying that a war would start because they had previously offered money to Mexico for California in the southwest. But after Mexico declined, then they initiated a war and took 51% of their territory. It just seems like we've always had that imperialist streak about us, right? Even even if those areas did want to join the U.S., I mean, we we started a war to get them, right? Well, I mean, even if they did want to join the U.S., it's the fact that we were interested in having them enter the, I mean, become enter the fold, so to speak, in the first place. I mean, the fact that we're putting offers on the table, you're definitely right. There is an imperialistic streak from the beginning. I mean, you move out and you take more territory. That's kind of what imperialism is. I think we have this mistaken idea that it has to be this huge global empire to be imperialist, because when we think of imperialism, we think of the British Empire, the Spanish Empire, the Dutch Empire, the Portuguese empires. And that's how we that's how textbooks today actually define it. The age of imperialism. They talk about those specific things. So when you're talking about all they're the contiguous United States and they've always been the contiguous United States. Right. And that's not. (sighs) That's not imperialism. That's taking what's rightfully ours for being here in the first place. It's yeah, you're right. There's this kind of, again, this national myth that it, that's not imperialism. That's, that's our destiny. Yeah. I, I just found that very interesting because I, I did, I didn't know the historicity of it. I, and I, when I looked into it, I was kind of like, wait a second, we, we've always been on the move to get more territory. Right. We've all. And the thing is, like, there's there's this, you know, glorification where the United States, we don't entangle ourselves in European wars. We just we don't do it. We don't you know we're we're we're, you know, uh, an isolationist nation. But it's more out of uh, convenience that we didn't do that. Right. You're you're definitely right. And it's really interesting that you bring this up because I'm trying to think in all of the times I've ever read about moving west and this idea of the manifest destiny and i'm thinking back to all the texts and articles and journals and i've never really seen it described as an imperialistic streak i think that's an interesting interpretation of the whole phenomenon and because like you look at the partition of africa that's considered textbook imperialism you look at moving into south america the spanish and portuguese empires that's imperialism everything happening in southeast asia china with the british that's imperialism but for some reason taking land from the natives who held it in America is not, it's not considered imperialism in, in American textbooks. And I not, I can't speak for, you know, textbooks in England and yada, yada, yada for high schools or even the text read and at read at colleges. But yeah, have you ever seen it described as imperialism? Hmm. The manifest destiny? Oh uh, no, I don't think I have either. Yeah, that's not, a, not um, in like school, not in like high school, not in high school. And I have definitely, I haven't seen it in college either. That's, that's a badass interpretation. I, I'm gonna. Start. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I no, I. But the thing is, I've just been thinking about it that way because, like, the thing is, it's just that narrative you've been learning your entire life. And, and the thing is, I feel, I feel like we can be nuanced people. We can look to areas like, uh, like Alaska, right? I mean, I, I think we took that territory in 1867 when, uh, when you know, I think it was Secretary of State Seward purchased it from Russia, right? You know, mm-hmm. the classic Seward's folly. I wouldn't call that imperialism. I would say, hey, you know, we we were off we. We, we just bought land, right? Mm-hmm. But in terms of starting a war to get land for Mexico and then taking the majority of their land, I don't know. That just, that just it's, it's hard to call that manifest destiny. I feel like that's more of a euphemism in my eyes. At that point. What necessitates 
imperialism? Does it have to, I don't think it inherently has to be violent or anything like that. I mean, I, I think hmm. land purchases could be imperialistic. I mean, how do you weigh on this? What do you think? Hmm. I mean, in that regard, do you have to assume that all aspects of it are bad? Yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, like well, it's, it, yeah, it's imperialism to do the Louisiana purchase in a way because you're just wanting to spread the purview of your country. But you know, they're, if they're getting it peacefully, and of course, what they do when they go into the land afterwards, that's another story. But if they're getting sure, it, sure, of course, is that the worst example of imperialism? And I you think know? I think the way we broadly teach imperialism, we kind of put it through a negative lens. We look at, oh, it, yeah, because it, I mean, yeah, it is generally bad. I mean, they subjugate mm-hmm. people. They, it's it's awful, but it's not always awful because, as Woodrow was just saying, yeah, the Louisiana Purchase could be an example of imperialism and in fact the whole idea that the french are selling the is selling the united states land that neither one of them technically even have a claim to at that point i mean yeah they got there but there were (laughs) already people there so the whole idea is already over this imperialist imperialism by proxy it's this imperialistic overlay of the whole deal so that's like imperialistic inception you know there's imperialism on top of imperialism (laughs) you you guys do make fantastic points there actually because you're you're right though because like i mean the french they only had like simple forts throughout the louisiana (laughs) perch they i mean they they didn't have like a stake in the same way that you know the united kingdom had a stake in you know eastern united states right like the french it was sparsely populated but you're right. They were pretty much selling land that was primarily occupied by the Native Americans, right? Yeah. So yeah, it, it's just it's interesting to me, dude. I don't know. I just mm-hmm. there's a certain narrative in this country about how yeah. we've expanded. I can yeah. test that a little bit. Well, because so. I mean, yeah, if you wanna if you wanna take it to its logical extreme, the only people who were not imperialists were the first, you know, people to to move out of Africa in some sense. <laughs> um, I mean, it would have to be sort of like the first people to to ever reach that land, because otherwise, I mean, it's someone taking it from someone at some point, right? We could you could make the argument that they're kind of the first imperialists. <laughs> that, that's they're also the first true. Actually, to take yeah. their culture and go somewhere mm. else and take new land. That's they're moving out. They're spreading their culture and their ideas to other places. Whether or not they're inhabited, I don't know, but. Yeah. It's kind of the, they impact the other predators in the area. They do, yeah, uh, and, and and the prey, yeah. <laughs> I mean, at that point, we're all just kind of educated apes. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. they're affecting the ecosystem. So, I think you, the argument could be made: those people that moved out of Africa were the first imperialists. I mean, really, the moment we start moving from Africa, are is there is there an imperialistic stake uh, streak inherent to humanity in general? Oh, I, I think that's that's probably undoubtedly true um, that, you know, I mean, it's it's sort of the human condition to never, uh, you know, be satisfied. Right. Like what the the iPhone nine isn't going to be the last one. I'd be willing to bet. Um, <laughs> what is it? Because the iPhone tens out. <laughs> oh, is it? OK. <laughs> I, I'm, a, yeah. I'm a Samsung <laughs> guy. I, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but I mean, you know what I mean? It's it's yeah. we're never our thirst is never quenched. So. I mean, look at look at the case with, uh, you know, the uh, the space race when we we colonized all of, you know, the inhabitable parts of of Earth. We kind of moved to the moon. Now, Elon Musk is looking to uh, terrascape. I think that's the right term. Uh, Mars. So, I mean, I think it's intrinsic to human nature to expand. But I don't know. I mean, whether or not 
but then that opens the question are we um you know are we uh moving into space in the same way that we moved into the louisiana purchase i don't know oh yeah that's just interstellar imperialism we have mm-hmm. big egos yeah <laughs> Well, because I don't know. I mean, do do we want to define imperialism as does it does it uh, is it a necessary part of imperialism taking the land from someone or is it just moving to land that has never been settled? I is morality limited to interaction with humans or not? Uh, I would say yes. I don't. I don't think you can have. I mean, this moves into um, you know moral metaethics in some sense, but it's it's our podcast. You know, we can do. Yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I I would contest the claim that morality exists outside of consciousness, right? If you if you have a universe of just rocks, inanimate objects, I don't think it means anything to say that there is morality in that universe. That's fair. Right. I pretty much agree with that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, that came out it's of nowhere, like but other agents, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it, for me, I, I guess um, it would become a. I mean, it is intrinsically a moral question because we are the ones moving to other parts of the universe. But I think it would become ethically a bit more entangled if there were other life forms that we were moving into, something like that. There's almost some sort of like gradation to it in a way, because mm. like if you move into like, you know, a completely uninhabited place, there's no animals, no trees. It's I probably morally um, just sort of neutral. Like, you know what I mean? But like once you move into like, you know, you you take the land of, you know, uh, animals and, you know, creatures that have, you know, existed there for thousands and thousands of years, possibly millions. Well, then then you then it's maybe not. Is it morally neutral at that point still, though, if it's just animals there? Well, I mean, this depends on if you're a sort of a, a Kantian rationalist or a Peter Singer utilitarian. Because if you're a classical Kantian, you would say that no, morality only exists for rational beings like ourselves. So, um, you know, famously, Kant really, he didn't have a problem with torturing animals because it was the animals that were suffering. He had a problem with it because it was us who were neglecting our sort of upper echelon type humanly duties in yeah, committing I, I these certainly atrocities. Disagree. I certainly disagree with that. I, yeah, mean, I, I would it, disagree as well. But I'm just saying your, your answer to that may depend on what sort of a, a, uh, an ethicist you are. Okay, I just think I think it's just really interesting because it's almost like a moral gradation. Because like once you move mm-hmm. past animals, what do you have? Like I guess with the Native Americans, especially during that time, there was like, hey, if if you encroach on white people's land, then you've got a problem. But if you <laughs> but if you encroach on uncivilized people's lands, that's a little more acceptable. A little more acceptable. You know what I mean? It's it's yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, there's always the bias of the person who's writing history, right? I don't know whose quote this is, but mm-hmm. um, it's it's the winners are the ones who write history. Um, so, but I mean, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but if if we were to you know colonize um, and be imperialistic in terms of space, it it wouldn't be a moral concern from anyone's perspective except our own. I guess, unless we encountered other life that was somehow affected by us, right? I mean, I don't know how else it could be. Um, That goes back to the fact that we really haven't defined imperialism for our discussion. I mean, what 
what do we consider imperialism in these contexts? Because if we're agreeing then that, okay, the Spanish empire moving into South America, that is imperialism. The Dutch empire moving into Africa and partitioning Africa, that's imperialism. But uh, the earliest known humanoids moving out of Africa, is that if that's considered imperialism, what then is our definition of imperialism? If all of this stuff is considered imperialistic, if the manifest destiny is imperialistic, if moving out of Africa is imperialistic, if taking over Africa again is imperialistic, what what is imperialism at that point? Is it just moving your culture or your being or your tribe or your family into a different location, seeding your ideas in a new geography? Is that imperialism or... Mm-hmm. Can you be imperialistic without actually physically moving? I mean, you could argue that, I mean, what American culture is very imperialistic in terms that, I mean, the entire world kind of consumes our media and listens to what listens to our value system. I mean, they see American films, they see um, play American video games, they watch American television shows, they see American culture and they think that that culture is the norm what is good because that's what we see at that point so are we being imperialistic without even sending people to different places but we're just sending ideas can you be imperialistic without physical movement is Hmm. what the fuck is imperialism it's a a fantastic question because i mean you're right you're right i mean like you're 100 (laughs) right like the way that we export our culture can be can fall within the purview of imperialism in that sense right i mean we are these people are unwittingly becoming, you know, sort of American acolytes by watching these films. Right. (laughs) Right. I mean, yeah, no, no, it's true. Now, Um, do you have to be, is there a degree of you have to be like wittingly imperialistic or can you do it unwittingly? Could you accidentally export your culture and therefore you're an imperialist or do you have to purposefully do it? Can you accidentally be an imperialist? Is that possible? hmm. Or is, does well, there have to be an intent behind it? Because that might be the beginning of our definition. Do you have to be, does there have to be some sort of intent behind you being an imperialist? Yeah, I was going to say the only sort of maybe worry I have with, with defining it too broadly is you sort of lose its specificity. I mean, I guess that's a little bit of a tautology, but uh, you know, if, if, if I guess my gut reaction was going to be imperialism would have to be, a at least physical imperialism maybe we could sort of have a, a two term for it there's ideological yeah. imperialism versus physical but maybe in the case for physical my intuition was to say that it would have to be constituted by one homogenous or semi-homogenous group of people uh occupying the land of another homogenous or semi-homogenous and i guess you could make an analogy to that with uh with ideas you know, it's one set of ideas occupying the space where another had previously been. But or I mean, do you... It, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, but do you guys agree with with the condition that I put up that it, there's something that had to be previously occupying that that spot? Now, is it... Are we moving that idea out or is our idea... Oh, boy, I could talk to my favorite person. Is that idea coming oh. in conflict <laughs> with another idea, therefore creating a... A new a, a synthesis. Oh shit! Mm. We're bringing out the Hegel. Is it? <laughs> is say uh, where? Isn't is imperialism an idea of his idea of like the spirit? Is it? Is it moving something towards something? I mean, is it? Because we're not. You can't delete something. You can't move into a culture and say your culture was never a thing. I think a great example of that is uh, if we go to Louisiana, right? We have this i this Creole language. It's a combination. It's a hodgepodge. The, the French came in, but it never really took away this language or this language moved in, but it never really took away that language. It combined these languages into something new. 
with still elements of these past things and, and new conditions. You know, uh, if we look at Africa, for example, when Africa's partitioned, African culture doesn't go away. I mean, Chinua Achebe's book, uh, Things Fall Apart, it's all about retaining the authentic authentic culture of in Africa against this idea of imperialism in this in this case christian missionaries and there's a combination of these cultures i mean there was a combination in uh, the united states of slaves they had this religion that was a combination of christianity and these um ethnic african religions and they combined together i mean yes it was religiously imperialistic to force christianity on this group of people but this group of people didn't necessarily completely reject their foundation they combined it to create something new and I think you see that a lot in imperialism. There's always this combination of the imperialistic culture with the culture that's already there, and it forms this new thing because you can't delete a people's identity completely. No, I think you're. I think you're right. I think given that what you put forward, because I agree with that. Given that, I think that any sort of you know foisting your culture on another person, I think is is imperialistic in nature. I, I think so. And so the thing is, like, I mean, even if, you know, people retain much of their identity, like, let's say, let's say Nepal, okay, but they're still watching, you know, Friends, like the TV <laughs> show, you know, I, I really do think that they are, you know, becoming American in many, many, many ways, right? Mm-hmm. So, but, but I guess, do you, do you want to call that imperialism, though, as opposed to a, I don't have a good term for it, but. I wonder if we want to differentiate between, like you said yourself, foisting an ideology or, or you know, in physical terms, a, a population onto someone else, or, or is it more of an absorbing of another person's culture? Because, I mean, I don't think we would say that we've forced, uh, you know, Netflix onto Nepal, right? No. But do, do you get what I mean? Don't, no, don't no I, I, I get wanna... what you mean. It's a really yeah. hard distinction. I, I, so I, I agree that goes back to, is it, does it have to be willful? Is there intent behind imperialism? I would say there probably is. What do you think, Adam? I agree with you. I No, no, I do agree with you. I, I've come yeah. to that conclusion too. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, with you. When you say willful. Oh, sorry, what was that? So I think imper- imperialist, I think conquistador. So anything that basically fits that model. <laughs> very narrow definition that's what we're, <laughs> we're sticking to basically <laughs> basically a conquistador you yeah, gotta so wear the armor so the whole chance, so let it be done. you need the headgear you and your horse yeah. <laughs> glorious godlike animal <laughs> unless you're conquering the aztecs then you're not you're not an imperialist <laughs> <laughs> then it's not immoral if it's not the aztecs then it doesn't matter uh, I, I don't know. It, it is a it, it is a difficult subject. I mean, I'm not gonna. I mean, it, these are all really really interesting points. I would say there is there is a gradient, no question, because I think a lot of things do fall under like the the definition of imperialism um, at you know at varying degrees of morality. Mm. But I think you're right that it has to be foisted upon someone. Um. Yeah, I don't. We're getting know. closer I, to a definition. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So, so here's maybe one last piece we need to iron out. Do you think it needs to be consciously, um, sort of put forth as imperialism by the perpetrators, or do you think that it's more dependent on a third person sort of, um, objective view of history? Right. Cause I don't think a lot of people in the moment would say that they were, 
imperialists, however we unequivocally view them as such. Um, yeah, I think you're kind of right in that, because is it imperialism until it's defined as imperialism in the history books? Because we were just talking about how you didn't really think about the manifest destiny as imperialism, but now it, we all, I think we all in this podcast right now agree that it is. So, ah, shit, that's not, that's a good question. Damn. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think it, it should be dependent on what the people committing it would say, because, well, then you leave yourself sort of open to the possibility that they could just say, well, <laughs> we're not committing imperialism, even if they clearly are. Right. So I, I don't think it would depend on them. I, no, not, I don't think so at all. I think it definitely it has no bearing on how they I mean you can call yeah. a cat a fucking dog, but at the end of the day, yeah, it's still a cat. It's still a cat. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. not imperialism, but if it is imperialism, it's imperialism. But the problem is, what are we calling imperialism? We still don't have a goddamn definition. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, so, so do we agree so far that it, it has to be a... And I guess there, we can put a modifier on it. There's physical versus ideological, right? But at its at its core, it's a it's a foisting of an ideology or a population onto another one without the, or, the or, initial or one's consent or, or someone's land, right? We we got to include that. Yeah, like, that, yeah, that's what I was saying for um for because we, because we can like like just going back to manifest destiny for a second. Like for example, we took their land, obviously, but also we had things like um I think it was the Dawes Act, right? Where we tried to, you know, pretty much, you know, reshape the the ideology and the culture of Native Americans to make them more American-like, right? I think that was the Dawes oh. Act. So we pretty much like put we we took young Native Americans out of their 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 communities and put them in these schools to make them become Americans, right? We you know tried to strip them of their cultures. Yeah, so, it, was, it was forced assimilation into American yeah. culture. It, it, you would have to. Um, Okay, those who accepted allotments and lived separately from the tribe would be granted United States citizenship. So you can no longer be a tribe member. You have to be an individual. You have to be a part of the American tribe, so to speak. Divide and conquer. And, uh, like during the Trail of Tears, at that point, the Cherokees were pretty much the most assimilated tribe that was in the eastern Georgia. part of America. Like they had schools. They were Christian for the most part. They pretty much acted and dressed like the colonists for the most part but they still identified themselves as Cherokee and they still spoke Cherokee. They wrote Cherokee and um, they just need. And so that's one of the justifications they used their, their, this before they're American. Mm. No, no, you're, you're hundred percent right. I was reading about that. It was, it was, it was in Georgia and they were, they had pretty much aligned themselves in every single way with the American government. I mean, they, you know, were trying, I think they established like, you know, local governments in alignment with the American government. But they still they, they didn't go far enough, like you know, to, to Andrew Jackson and the Congress. They were like, I think that was the uh, Indian Removal Act of eighteen thirty two. They just they just they couldn't handle it anymore. They're like these these people aren't white. <laughs> they're they're not white European. They got to go. Yeah. So well, that's a good example of sort of a it was a both right. It was a a geographical and ideological imperialism right because they they sort of took their land and then they forced them to change how they viewed themselves in the country. Well, I, I'm still of the, I might die on this hill, but I, I'm still going <laughs> to argue that I don't think there's, we're trying to separate them, but I think they may be yeah. inseparable because, I mean, we, let's say we go to, um, I'm going to use the example of Africa again. When the Dutch entered a Africa, it wasn't, you couldn't just uh, take the land and we have your land now. We took the land, but now you have to be Christians and like it. 
it's changing how you feel and how you think about the fact that your land was taken. Mm. We're not going to just take your land. We're going to take your land and we want you to be thankful for it. So Mm. there's this kind of ideological imperialism. And then there's also the geographical imperialism. Mm. They're kind of melded into this perfect idea. Imperialism, according to the Google dictionary is a policy of extending a country's power and influence through diplomacy or military force. But I think that's lacking. That's definitely lacking. It's a shit definition. Yeah, it's it's, it's terrible. I, I, I think <laughs> fire that guy. Yeah. <laughs> if someone were to watch this podcast, they wouldn't get a, a textbook definition. But but we've we've talked about it so much that we all kind of know what we're talking about at this point. You know what I mean? Yeah, like we all yeah. we all know what we're talking about, like in terms of what imperialism looks like. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well. T- well, Tom. I was gonna say maybe maybe it might be the case that that physical or geographical imperialism necessitates ideological, but I wonder if it works the reverse way as well. I I think you might be able to make the case that ideological um, imperialism need not contain geographical. Okay. I don't know. I I think I would buy that, but I don't have strong reasons supporting it. Well, now I'm kind of backing up on my original assertion there because I don't think you need to have them both. Say... Mm we land on the moon and plant our flag there's no is there ideological imperialism behind that we're not convincing a culture that <laughs> this is the new culture we're just taking over land at that point there's no there's no kind of cultural manipulation behind that aside from the propaganda we're selling on our own side but is flying to mars and establishing a colony there is do you need any kind of ideological imperialism is that inherent to that or can you just do it by are you just taking land at that point so now i might be more likely to agree with the that with the idea that we have two forms of imperialism that you can employ well it's weird because i think clearly you're not imposing an ideology on anyone right because no one exists there so but but then well but wait a minute is that imperialism though because you're not uh you're not like uh, uh, occupying a land or a space of ideas that belong to anyone so is that do we want to differentiate that from imperialism do we want to call that just expansion or well or if we, we are going to call that? that expansion i feel like we have to call the out of africa stuff that's also just expansion because that was that an ideological space that you're taking over or, or are you just expanding but then again you're affecting the environment i mean or if we move animals away from their natural ecosystem if we cut down trees yada 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 is Mm -hmm. that considered imperialism Mm. i think the key distinction there might be the fact that we are affecting other life whereas on the moon i mean presumably there's no life um yeah presumably (laughs) all of the conspiracy theory people (laughs) we don't want that to happen there are grades and aliens (laughs) and all kinds of shit that we're messing with yeah, the, I don't the, know the if thing, our podcast the, really attracts that crowd, but the, the the thing with like the moon uh, or or Mars is that at first it doesn't strike me as imperialism, right? But let let's take it to the logical extreme, okay? okay. Imagine if the United States was powerful enough that we could set up, you know, certain colonies on all the planets. Well, not the gaseous planets, but on if we were just to expand throughout the solar system. Imagine the rest of the world just looks at the United States expanding throughout the solar system. Even though no one's there, is that that imperialistic to take that land across the solar system? Well, what's the point of imperialism? That's the first question. Why are we 
expanding? I mean, are we expanding because we need to expand? Are we expanding to as like a show of force against the other powers? Like, what's the purpose for imperialism? That question asked, I think if we agree that there is a real purpose behind imperialism, I think you could argue that the moon landing and planting the flag is definite imperialism. We were trying to beat another nation there. We were expanding our empire. We were asserting our power and dominance over the Soviet Union or the Soviet Union to us if they got there first. It was all about who could do it. And I think that would be an example of imperialism because you're expanding your empire before another empire could get there. So obviously there must be some intrinsic value to where you're going symbolic or otherwise and, and you're and you're asserting cultural dominance too yeah so that i mean yeah. i i think that that's that's a key aspect as well no but i agree with you so huh that's that's it's a it's a slippery pig to nail down i guess yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, were, we came into this thing what's the methodology of history and rhetoric during yeah. world war ii to dude if we land on the moon <laughs> what does that mean yeah. that's, that's, that's the course in all of our podcasting I go outside, is that imperialism if I was inside before? Oh, fuck you, Woodrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if, if, if you're asserting your cultural dominance once you exit your house, then <laughs> stop to get your neighbors. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I know it was a joke, but it's not an illegitimate point to consider that we don't, we don't want to define things so loosely that they could be stretched to, to map onto anything we do, right? Like, is, is my hand here versus here some sort of imperialism on the air? Like, and also just like, does the, does the word imperialism, even if it fits the definition of something, mean that the thing is bad? Or maybe do we need like a new, a new thing entirely to talk about? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, because I guess we do attach some sort of morality or immoral or immorality to imperialism. I mean, the way we teach it is it could be inherently wrong, but not always. Or how does that work? So discussion about whether or not something fits the definition of a word can turn into discussion of whether or not it fits the definition of evil. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, your, your question... People can interpret it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and your question has a lot to do with... um you know, cultural relativism as well. Like, is it ever correct to say that a, you know, a, a practice is wrong because it exists in a different country? Um, you know, like, would we, would we want to define imperialism as, I don't want to use the United States because it's, it's too easy to malign. Um, maybe, well, you know, what if Canada goes into, um, you know, because Canada's great. You know, what, what if Canada goes into Saudi Arabia and occupies them and liberates the women there from female genital mutilation. But, but it's too hot. What, what's that? It's too hot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they wouldn't survive. <laughs> right? But, like, would, would we want to call that imperialism? And, I mean, I guess if, if yes, do we think it's good? Is it, is it justified? I don't know. I mean, it's just sort of big questions. Well, because they're on the, if they're assuming they're on the winning side, they're not going to call it imperialism. They're going to call it liberation. You know, they'll market it as something else. So you have to take it from an objective standpoint, looking back, say it already did happen. It depends on whether or not they, um, if they go there, do they leave? You know, is is U.S. intervention in Iraq considered imperialism? We set up a democracy there. Is the democracy, since it's based on an American model of democracy, is that considered a form of imperialism because we installed our cultural ideas? Of, oh shit! Our cultural ideas from this goddamn textbook. <laughs> <laughs> I I, w- I would say 
yes, that is definitely a form of imperialism. But, you know, I'm not, I, I guess then at that point, not all imperialism is bad imperialism then, right? You could have sort of a, a spectrum where you could have, you know, downright horrible imperialism. You could have innocuous imperialism and you can have possibly positive imperialism, right? I mean, I mean, I'm not going to say Iraq was a success. I mean, it was a, it was a disaster. Oh yeah, but well, it was. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to get on that route. Bad. I'm not going to get on that route. But but what about um, how about what about the rebuilding of Japan after World War II? I mean, we rebuilt Japan with an American, you know, style of government. Or, or we 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 rebuilt them in our image, right? And, and look at their constitution. Yeah, and, and, and just just look at you know how japan's doing today they're doing fantastic right so what does that mean does that mean that it's necessarily bad i wouldn't say that's bad i would say that was a success right i mean it could be considered a success but we also did hamper the the nation they're actually going through troubles right now regarding the constitution that we put in place in 1945 they um there's a clause in there. I forget the exact article or whatnot. They're, they're not allowed to have a standing military. It's a security force. So they're not allowed to um, spend as much on a stated military force. And they're, what was that? Germany too. Germany too. But yeah, Japan is currently going through all kinds of um, legislative problems trying to repeal that. So it not it's not necessarily a complete success. I mean, it's still a concern, a discussion that's happening up until this day. So it wasn't perfect. So then can we was it all good you know no no you're right you're just you're, you're just adding nuance to my broad statement <laughs> like yeah, yeah you're, no, you're, right. you're, no you're, you're right though like i it was a uh, an incomplete statement on my part like uh i i, I guess you could you know man it, it's a complicated subject because i mean like you can't determine whether a specific area of imperialism is good or bad you have to examine every aspect of that imperialism so if you think that's complicated let's talk about israel i'm kidding we're not <laughs> well you know different day <laughs> there's sort of a um there's sort of a term in philosophy called the the three mile island problem i think it's called um where you can never determine how good or bad an event was until you know the full ramifications of it so you know the, the question is is was the three mile island meltdown a good thing or a bad thing and the first reaction that a lot of people have is, well, it's a stupid question. It was a bad thing. But then, you can know, you, what can, you, can, you, can you give me like a little, uh, I, what, 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 was that the nuclear um, sort of, yeah, the, uh, sort of, I, words aren't coming meltdown. meltdown. Yeah. yeah, where they had the nuclear reactor sort of just like, you mm -hmm. know, blew up essentially, right? I, I think it was the three mile island. It's either the three, five or seven mile island. <laughs> But, that, but that's what you're referring to, right? I am. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And and so there's this question that can be asked. You know, was that good or bad? And and like I said, a lot of people's intuition is that's a stupid question. It was bad because you know a nuclear meltdown is bad. I think people people died in that. Uh, there's an area of Japan that's rendered uh, you know unlivable. Things like that. Yeah, yeah. But but then the question arises. Well, you know, what if that happening? created the circumstances in which we institute uh, safer programs that would deter, you know, say we can be certain about this, that deter a way more catastrophic, maybe even population canceling nuclear meltdown, you know, 50 years from now, would it still be a bad thing at that point? And so it, it's sort of a, it's, it's a question or actually a, um, 
a counterpoint raised against consequentialism a lot. So okay. I think we... Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I, was, I was gonna say, so you're saying that like it's hard to really look at individual aspects of imperialism because we don't know the you know what the counterfactual would be. Is that what you're, mm -hmm. that's what you're mm -hmm. saying, right? Like we don't we don't know you know what events would have arisen had the imperialism not occurred, but mm -hmm. we can only judge the events that have occurred as a result of the imperialism. Well, I yeah. don't think if if we look at it in these terms, I don't think we could ever really make a, a solid decision. This was good or this was bad because, I mean, if we really think about it, humans are inherently historical creatures. We inherit everything from our past. All right. And we work with it. We create something new from it or we regress from it. Yada, yada, yada. I think you can never know the full ramification of something. Okay. Three Mile Island, right? That nuclear meltdown's horrible, but now we learn better safeguards to guard against it. But the environment's damaged, but maybe something else happens to counteract that. And it's just this constant moving force of this things coming into contact with other things and new things coming from it. Jesus Christ, that's some more Hegel for you. But <laughs> there's just always this progression. So can you really make a definite statement? This is bad. Yeah, this is bad today, but maybe it's good tomorrow, you know? So I, to add to that, the whole like hindsight is 2020 thing never truly applies in like any sort of ultimate moral sense because we know what happened 4,000 years ago. We know how it affects us now. We don't know how it's going to affect people 4,000 years in the future. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, yeah, no, it's a, great, it's a great point. It's never really hindsight. We're always right in the middle of it. Say mm. I get my dick chopped off, right? That's horrible. <laughs> I am so listeners, he didn't that quote. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I don't reproduce and I were like three people short of over, you know, too many people on the earth. Boom, that was a good thing, you know. 100 years down the road, oh, that guy's dick got chopped off. That yeah. was great. <laughs> or the straw that didn't break the camel's back. Yeah, it's the straw that didn't break the camel's back. So, we I, I guess we really can never make a solid judgment on things being good or bad because you just got to say, "Ah, we'll see." Yeah, we'll see. With some stuff, we can make some uh, pretty strong uh, guesses, though. Like, we could probably say that the Holocaust was pretty much bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all yeah, around yeah. that shit's pretty terrible. Uh, <laughs> yeah. trying... it's a, that's, that's a good guess, though, because generally in history, treating people that way has proven to be bad. And we can look at trends so far, but that's the most we can do. Everyone leave the room. Was there a silver lining? <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> no, I, I'm trying to think like, yeah, is there something yeah. that came of it that was yeah, beneficial? Yeah. You're at, you're out of frame. <laughs> well, That's I mean, yeah, it, it is weird because there's, there, there are events in history that we can clearly say, okay, there is what, like an infinitesimal probability that this was a good event in the long run. Like surely we could have learned that concentration camps for Jews were bad without the Holocaust happening, right? Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so there's, I guess there's a question of the necessity to it. And, and I, I mean, I don't know, I, 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 there's this um, area of study called computational ethics that is really controversial. And it, there are a lot of philosophers working on it. Well, I should say this deliberation that we're having can be avoided if we were all Kantians and just said that, um, you know, to follow a, a deontological line, an act is either wrong or it's right, regardless of consequences. Um, so we could. That kind of, that kind of, that? Kind of sounds like uh, 
like utilitarian calculus with higher computing power. <laughs> yes, only the, the it, it's true, but there's an important distinction that, um, and you know, this is really appalling to a lot of people, but um, Kant, Immanuel Kant, who I've been referencing, um, he he says that he he. I mean, this isn't verbatim, but he doesn't give a fuck what the consequences are, right? Like everyone could die, but it is still wrong to lie. It, it's a really polarizing ideology that he has. Um, but uh, sorry, that was a tangent. What, what was the question that I was actually answering? No, I think what you said kind of relates to like what I was saying about how we can look at some things and say that they're generally bad because there's some things that just you know through history you just see a general trend of things not turning out the right way within you know windows and whatever window of time you apply for things like lying, killing, you know, cheating, stealing. But you can you can find the effects that they have and note that they're bad and just kind of categorize them off. And that's what Kant does. Maybe he was a little bit too rigid, but that's not to say that there's nothing to his idea. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, 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 it really is a blend of both ideologies, right? Because even something like just kind of go full circle here, like with world war one and world war two, I mean, j even though those wars were, you know, resulted in the deaths of millions of people, you know, the technology that we were able to, you know, come up with as a result of those wars has greatly improved the lives of people today, mm. right? That rapid increase in, you know, uh, technological prowess has, has just benefited generations to come. So I don't, I mean, from a consequentialist look at that, you could say, well, maybe, maybe the wars weren't so bad, right? Because, because, mm -hmm. you know, people live, you know, have, have higher qualities of life now, you know, people who uh, didn't have, you know, uh, readily accessible you know food and water maybe do to a greater extent now because of the technology that was a direct result so mm -hmm. i don't know i mean as a as a utilitarian or consequentialist you'd also have to absorb all of the pain and suffering that was caused so it's not like a it's not a clean bill of health either way yeah i mean, yeah, I mean you're you, you, familiar you, with uh hedy lamar and the, sorry uh, what's that tracking system. uh can you repeat that sorry are you guys familiar with Hedy Lamarr and her missile tracking system? No. No. So Hedy no. Lamarr was an actress in the, like back in the day, and she developed, in her spare time, she was an engineer, and she she developed a system for guided missiles, which basically like it tracked a sequence of different radio signals. And uh, the type of tech, the base model of the technology that she developed back then to make guided missiles is used in Wi-Fi and GPS now. Wow! Really? Oh, you know what? Like comes yeah. from that. It has a totally different application in the real world. Yeah, I had heard of that, but I, I never <laughs> knew it was attributed to her. Yeah, bombshell! Great documentary. <laughs> that's fascinating, actually. Yeah. No, it is. I mean, there are these weird questions of, um, you know, can we really be sure about causality, and can you know, how do we weigh this consequence versus that one? Um, and I think, you know, history is is really, you know, kind of pregnant with all of these considerations of, you know, how does this event shape this one? And I mean, I well, one way of saying, saying history is fucked up. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, you know, going back to the Holocaust example, I mean, I mean, what what if, you know, the Holocaust did result in something that, you know, has benefited generations to come? I mean, I, I'm. One couldn't rule out that possibility, but you, you'd have to make a damn good case to make that, you know, to, to, to say yeah. that, right? I mean, like, yeah. I, I, you know, 
all of us would be very much unconvinced that that was an overall positive event, mm-hmm. right? We would say, yeah. no, that was a negative event in the course of human history. But yeah, the allies win the war. <laughs> yeah, 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 of course, of course. Yeah. And it, it's just that um, that that's as, as certain as we can be in history, right? I guess that, or at least a historical perspective is to, is to say, you know, um, although we can't be certain these events didn't result in a net positive, you know, you know, uh, gain for, you know, for the human well-being, we could be pretty damn sure they didn't, right? Like in some cases. Yeah. And, well, and someone always on the losing side of this, you know, mm. is, it, is it who's talking about what was positive and what was negative? I mean, yes, the Holocaust was awful, but let's say for a second, little science fiction here, the we, we lose the war, right? allies lose the war the axis powers win the war and then they're writing the history books what is what is the holocaust in that format what is that was the holocaust in that formulation that's the what great purging that helped society become its greatest possible iteration i mean yeah it's positive then even though it you know caused the sacrifice of great human life through atrocity but now since we won the war and morality triumphed and we understand that killing a lot of people is really not good at all it's an atrocious activity but it, it's interesting i mean is the i'm trying to think of another fucking example um well, well, how about like you know kind of bug- look at it the way we look at like the trail of tears and slavery like mm. would they would their morality have evolved would they have become the good guys eventually i mean like these are the kind of things that like yeah you, you don't want to get caught you know <laughs> discussing any possibility of them being good but you know you you really never know how a culture would develop after that point no no and and i I totally agree with that and just to sort of buttress your point uh i I was just thinking you know once again to go full circle just thinking of you know the the united kingdom's empire and the spanish empire the portuguese empire and, and so on and so on i mean because of you know the the mercantilism that occurred during that time period there was a concentration of resources in europe that led to, you know, the enlightenment, the scientific revolution that has led to, you know, just greater human well-being overall, right? And that was through the exploitation and subjugation of people, right? So, and they're the winners who tell history. They, you know, Europe is seen as, you know, wonderful Europe in today's time, like, you know, <laughs> right? I mean, they, they yeah, are the, yeah. the, the, the fathers of the Renaissance and the enlightenment and the scientific revolution. And, and we don't, we don't con- we do condemn them for the imperialism but we almost see it as a means to an end to create the society we have today so yeah that's, that's true I, I'm, I'm sorry I, I was looking at the, the, the youtube <laughs> comment section during that and i saw this utilitarian calculus which made me laugh yeah yeah it, it would comp score times 0. 0.6 plus utilitarianism score divided by lag distributed time <laughs> yeah what's well, funny it, i mean <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> who said that that bastard who was that that was uh that was teddy that was one of, of the co-hosts that, too. of course that was teddy oh, of yeah. course it was teddy yeah i i don't know i don't <laughs> it's actually in i i think in the long run uh i was speaking of consequences i think it was actually sort of fortuitous that teddy and brian couldn't join because i think the four of us occupied more than our fair share of airtime yeah it was uh <laughs> quite a bit of talking two more people we've been at each other's throats fucking cutting heads off yeah this, this would have had to be double the time which i'm i'm now realizing we're we're about four times as long as your podcast episodes go oh uh, we we just we like to 
we typically break it up into this episodic kind of thing. I mean, we could go all in one stroke and do a Dan Carlin, but I realize that mm-hmm. I listen to Dan Carlin in chunks, you know, 30 yeah. minutes here, an hour there. So I, I thought it was more accessible to most people to do history in 30 minutes quick on your commute. You can get it done. Now, I love these long form discussions. I mean, we're hitting the the Joe Rogan yeah. uh, lengthwise, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, his echelon of podcasting length. Our, our, our model definitely isn't as you know uh, conducive to people who just casually listen. But you're right. I mean, but I, I mean, it, we have fun. So we, yeah, we. Have- <laughs> yeah. We're able to do by like breaking up the episodes. The way we do is we can kind of give like you know themes like further the theme in it. Like we're doing the blood sports series right now, and we broke it up by the list of literary conflicts, mm. like man versus man, man versus nature, man versus society, self, technology. And uh, we're really analyzing the idea of sports, games, and the use of violence therein. Yeah. I, w- I wanted to ask you this, Tom um, and Woodrow. Uh, how? Because c- I've only listened to one, actually, episode of yours in preparation for this. Uh, I told you it was you episode bastard. 90. <laughs> well, well, well <laughs> let me redeem myself. Yeah, I highly recommend it to all of our listeners. If they've um, gotten this far. Yeah. 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 I um, you know what? I, I'm also realizing that I haven't um, I haven't sufficiently plugged your podcast. So before we close out, which uh, which we should probably do soon, I, I do want to give you the chance, and then also uh, fuck them. Uh, Let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> we could. I would just require a bathroom break. <laughs> yeah, I definitely would have to piss soon. So yeah, we we should probably get to wrapping it up. Plus, what yeah. time? Oh, it's not like the night is young, boys. It is ten forty-eight. <laughs> That's true. Uh, it's true. But I've got uh, homework no. due tomorrow. <laughs> well, no, we should we should probably wrap. It's been a good conversation, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, open invitation though to come back for sure. Oh, for sure. Oh, I would, I would love I would love to come back. But this was uh, this was a lot of fun. I'm down. Yeah, yeah it was a lot of fun. We we um, definitely yeah, had a great time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but but so before we go, I had a quick question. Um, so how how much of your podcast is scripted, and how much is just you sort of rambling? Oh well, I don't ramble, sir. Well, I, you know, I, 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 I hate you, I, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, we um, <laughs> the, there there is um, typically I have a outline in my head. We write out some sort of outline. We get the all right. First off, it's extremely fucking stressful because it's like every week we release the episodes. So it's a shit ton of research for each episode. It's definitely yeah. I, a lot of hours. You do all the research. And you kind of plug in quotes and things you want to do in the certain strategic places. And then I would, if I have a really good connecting phrase or something that I want to do, we'll plug that in. But otherwise, if I'm going to make uh, a joke or a connection or I'm going to kind of explain something, if I come across like a complicated passage and we need to break it down a little bit, that's typically all off the cuff, how I'm feeling in that moment. Um, I mean, obviously, I think everyone in this room and on this chat here is pretty good at pulling it out of their asses. I mean, we've talked for two hours, <laughs> yeah, yeah. making pretty uh, valid points. I mean, that's all. I think that's all a credit to you know knowing shit. So that's that's good. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we like to pretend it's more than just confabulation. <laughs> yeah, no, no. There's definitely we're definitely going towards something. I mean, there's a definite ideas coming out, and no one's just kind of bsing except for maybe me i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah it's funny because like uh, the the name of our podcast kind of spawned from um it was it was a twofold thing the the first was that you know the the four of us who do it really just sort of hate bad arguments and hate bullshit 
And there was this, there's this excellent book um, that was written by uh, Harry Frankfurt, who's this philosopher. It's called On Bullshit. It's, you've read that? Yeah. Yeah, dude, it's, it's one of my favorite books of all time, honestly. I'd put it in my top five. And it's just, um, it's just 67, 66 pages long. And he, he talks about what bullshit is and what it means to us. Exactly. It's like this, it's an incredible book where he talks about, um, you know, what it is to bullshit in a very technical sense. Um, <laughs> and so it was funny because we, we sort of hated that, but we've ended up doing a good bit of it. But, but yeah, that, that was the genesis of it. Um, but hey, uh, I, I'm proud of myself. I didn't bring up Trump once. <laughs> what, what was, oh. no, you brought him up. What the? F- ah. <laughs> the street is broken. Let's just take that cat, put him back in the bag. <laughs> yeah. No, no, of course, of course. Yeah. Um, but I, I did. We should close out. But I wanted to give you guys the chance to to plug the podcast, and then I know uh, Woodrow, you you do illustrations for a magazine. Yeah, oh, yeah, something that might be of interest to anybody listening here. I illustrate for Philosophy Now magazine. There's my Frankenstein there on the cover. Uh, it's available at Barnes and Noble anywhere. These guys are awesome. They uh, they really tackle some interesting stuff. I remember a while back I read an article about whether or not it would be more morally acceptable to like lobotomize pigs that we eat. Hmm, <laughs> so they're know. out there. It's a great magazine. Oh, that sounds awesome. That is awesome, dude. <laughs> yeah. And then the yeah. podcast. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We're a Dirty History podcast. You can, you know, find us on all the bullshit. You know, Instagram, social media. Uh, we're on Twitter at Pod Dirty, Dirty History Pod. Um, we can go on our website though, and that really has all the links you would need. DirtyHistoryPod.com. You could find out a little bit about us, what we're all about, our purpose for doing the show, and why I think it's an important important thing to listen to i mean to a degree i'm trying to create some sort of it's an important part of history for sure and it's um you don't get the fullest picture of history without these things that are typically left out if any of these topics sound interesting you might dig it we talked a lot about cannibalism uh religious uses of fecal matter we talked about gd allen that was called dirty and proud it was using um the repudiation of shame to gain some sort of power that was a lot of fun um in the Coliseum, I think that was the episode you listened to, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, he can tell you it, it was it was good, right? That was a great one. I love that. On the spot. Yeah, how the how the Romans slaughtered uh, different animals and had those naval battles even in the Coliseum. That was I had no idea. That was incredible. Yeah, shit was crazy for sure. We ref and then this whole series on blood sports. I'm actually really proud of this series. I think it's it's interesting. I learn something new every single time. That's primarily why I do it. I learn a lot of shit doing the show because i'm just doing a shit ton of research i'm like oh shit this this happened no way and then <laughs> gross too i mean there's some gross shit in there um this last episode you talk about some gorings that happen in the for matadors in the bullring you know lacerated lungs and all kinds of crazy shit and goose pulling goose pulling yeah we're, we <laughs> talked about goose pulling <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, needless to say, I highly recommend it. Even I'll though start, I'll start listening. Hell yeah! Yeah, yeah. As, <laughs> as you pointed out so astutely, Tom, one episode only. <laughs> yeah, listen to episode nineteen. That's the only one that gets the BS guarantee. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the only episode you can listen to. Maybe he'll listen to a couple more, and then he can recommend <laughs> the other ones. But as of right now, people, 
listen to episode 19. That's the only episode you should listen to. If you listen to any <laughs> other episodes, you're doing it fucking wrong. I don't want you to listen to these other, other episodes. What are you doing? They weren't recommended to you. Are you so yeah. you have thoughts? Like, go fuck yourself. Don't listen. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're podcast sluts if they listen to anything besides episode 19. <laughs> 19 and a stop, like a real podcast listener. You could subscribe to the Patreon, though. You could do that. And if you want to go for the others, we won't shame you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you two stay on the line. But um, for now, I'm going to end this uh, end this stream. And for those who are listening on RSS feeds, um, you can go to the YouTube uh, version of this to to watch the live chat unfold and also to see our smiling faces as we discuss all this. So until next time, thanks for listening. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode and learned something from it. And if you want to support my work and what I'm doing, you can do so by supporting me on Patreon. You can go um, to patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers and donate um, on a monthly basis and receive rewards for your donation. Um, again, that's J-O-R-D-A-N-M-Y-E-R-S. And uh, the links will to everything will be in the description below. If you can't monetarily support me, you can support me in other ways by liking this video, uh, commenting on it below, reviewing the show on iTunes, or sharing it with a friend or with your Twitter followers. Um, you can also email me at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com and follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And if you want, um, you can check out my other show called That's BS. Um, it's a more discussion-based show with me and friends. Uh, I mentioned it at the top of this episode. So um, if you enjoyed this, please consider supporting me on Patreon. And as always, thanks for listening.